Our scripture for this evening comes from John, Gospel of John, chapter 18, and we're going to read the first 12 verses, 1 through 12. So John 18, 1 through 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Then when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that had been spoken, that he had spoken of those whom you give me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening once again, uh, and thanks for joining us to worship on Good Friday, those of you here in person, but also those of you on Facebook or YouTube. It's really an honor to be before you and study the scriptures and open them up together. Once a year, the Christian church around the world and across time gathers and celebrates Good Friday. That Friday, roughly 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on a cross like a criminal, to rescue his people from our sins. Tonight, we're going to look at a scene that sets the whole Good Friday in motion. It's the beginning of the end. It's, that, it's the, the, what precipitates that first Good Friday in the New Testament. Specifically, we're going to look at this first section from the Gospel of John chapter 18. But before we stand in the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, would you pray with me for our time together in these words this evening? Father, um, it is a privilege to open your word. It's a privilege to, to put ourselves into the narrative, to be with you in the dark, in the torches, with the soldiers, with the slicing of swords through the air. And Lord, um, we think about the events that followed. And Lord, would you put us in the frame of mind where we can look at those and we can both be horrified but also be thankful. Would you help us to meditate upon you, Christ crucified? Lord, and would that be the gospel, the good news that sings to our heart, that enlivens us this spring, tonight, even as we're sobered by it, would you help us to be delighted by it? We ask this, and Lord Jesus, would you be high and lifted up, more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen. 
2019 article in the Washington Post is actually in the relationships section. Uh, Nancy French writes about this whirlwind relationship, a romance that turned into a hasty marriage. They met, they barely knew each other. There was a ring, a decision to marry, and then a quick move to New York City. On both sides, everyone was concerned. A church elder hand wrote a letter to Nancy. (laughs) David's friends held a tearful intervention. A beloved mutual professor openly questioned the decision. And Nancy's mother, only half-jokingly, referred to David as a rank stranger. (laughs) That was sort of her nickname for him, rank stranger. (laughs) But they were in love and purposefully lived life like a romantic pop song. Set on a creaky fire escape, just in view of the Empire State Building, they sat and watched as the Empire State Building lit up at night. And then, well, I can't say it better than Nancy French can, so I'm just going to quote her a little bit. Then, one week after the marriage, the phone rang. May I speak to David? asked a sultry-voiced woman. He quickly hung up. Wrong number, he said. A few hours later, it rang again. Another woman, this is Nancy, I dusted near the phone so I could eavesdrop. Did my seemingly loyal husband have a double life? Another wrong number, he said. I believed him until the phone rang at 3 a.m. and 4. The calls became more regular at all hours of the night and day. It got so common, I was no longer surprised when the breathy voices on the other end of the line morphed into sighs of disappointment. David always got off the phone exasperated, or was it an act? I took messages when he was out. Desiree, Brandy, Jill. One woman started crying. We were just together yesterday. I was confused and hurt. Instead of hearing the female caller's voices on the phone, I heard only the unheeded warnings of friends clanking in my head, warnings about not really knowing this man, all the bad that could happen. One day, Nancy finally got the courage to confront her new husband, David, and she asked, what's really going on? Wrong numbers don't usually ask for people by name. We can almost hear Nancy's hurt and disappointment. This is not the man, this is not, this is this man is not what I thought. This man is not what I thought. I can't believe I've given my love over to him. The same kind of hurt, perhaps even the same disappointed thoughts, happened in a garden, not a city, 2,000 years earlier and halfway across the world. The disciples frequently met Jesus there in that garden amid the olive trees, and there with Jesus in view, life must have felt like a summer anthem pop song. Tonight, we are young, so let's set the world on fire. We can burn brighter, brighter than the sun. Carry me home tonight, just carry me home tonight. Carry me home tonight, just carry me home tonight. But then, right when everything was about to happen, when the love and trust felt so justified, the bottom fell out like a wet brown paper bag, plop. And as Jesus' followers watched Jesus get betrayed and also betray their dreams, Jesus was arrested, no swords allowed, and a frog marched back into the city he days ago triumphantly entered. Like Nancy French, the disciples' ears must have rung with friends and family's unheeded warnings. They likely thought, this man is not what I thought. 
I can't believe I've given my love over to him. And we're with them. I'm not that different than them a lot of the time. Whether we call ourselves Christian this evening, whether we would say we follow Jesus or not, who here at this Good Friday service hasn't felt the darkness and the disappointment with Jesus at times? You can likely point to a time or two where the summer anthem glitched. Prayers like Hail Mary passes that Jesus didn't seem to catch. Where are the comforts, the power, the admiration when we stick with it? Love still gets us hurt all of the time. And it can't feel like Jesus is, it can just feel sometimes like Jesus isn't interested in me that much. And he's got this steady stream of other breathy voices and disappointed sighs on the other side of the line. The challenge of this passage is that Jesus intentionally disappoints you and me. He literally dies on us. Before he's shockingly arrested, and before he dies, he's shockingly arrested and practically hogtied. But John 18, verses 1 through 12, push us into a hope on the other side of disappointment. We're pushed into a hope on the other side of disappointment. And they do this first by showing us what kind of man Jesus is, verses 1 through 9. And second, in verses 1 through 12, we're shown just why we should give our love over to Jesus. And those are our two points this evening. We're going to look at Jesus' person, and we're going to look at Jesus' plan in that order. And we're going to begin with the beginning in Jesus' person. So in the first nine verses of this chapter 18, we're told that Jesus is a man we can trust. And here's how. Jesus, Judas excuse me, leads the way for at least 200 heavily armed Romans and Jewish troops. But look closely at verses 5 and 6. There, these battle-hardened group of Romans and Jews, they draw back and they fall to the ground. Why? <laughs> Why are they, these fully armed, ready-to-battle men, scared of a 33-year-old skinny ex-carpenter? They fall back and they fall down on their faces because of what Jesus says. He says it not once, but twice. I am he. That doesn't sound very threatening. <laughs> I'm he. Here in verse 8, Jesus identifies himself to his attackers and to us with these words. You see, in the original language of this passage in Greek, Jesus actually doesn't say, I am he. He only says, I am. Ego emi is the Greek way of saying, I am, or I am who I am. And therefore, it's also the Greek way of saying, I am Yahweh, or Yahweh. That is the name God calls himself over and over again in the Old Testament, starting with the passage we read earlier in Exodus chapter 3. So Jesus isn't just reporting his attendance here. He's actually announcing that he's come and he is the Lord our God. Jesus, a man you could have sent junk mail to. Jesus of Nazareth is claiming to have created everything, to sustain everything, to change the entire planet. And these battle-ready troops don't just nod their heads. They're floored by Jesus' claim. They simultaneously can't believe it, 
and they're terrified it's true that this man is God. If we really read the Bible, if we really hear what Jesus says about himself, our reactions will be similar. We are dealing with a man who claims he is God Almighty. No matter where we are with Jesus, whether you side more with Judas or you side more with Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, none of us can treat Christianity as one more good idea. We can't just hang Jesus on a hook with Islam and Buddhism and some other variation of New Age religion as one of many good ideas. We can't merely mix in some Jesus on Sunday or Easter time with the rest of our secular suburban lives. Because Jesus claims to be God. He can't be just another way to get our individual consumer needs met. The pastor and writer Tim Keller puts it really well. Jesus is saying in these verses, I am God, come to find you, because you'll never find me unless I come after you. I am God, come to find you, because you'll never find me unless I come after you. All the other major world religion founders, everything else in our lives, from advertising to political news feed streams, all, they're all saying the opposite. I have come to show you the way to find God for yourself. The opposite. So it's simple. Either Jesus is completely wrong about being God and Christianity is completely worthless, or Jesus is right, and Christianity is the only central thing to build our very lives around. And so verses 1 through 9 tell us Jesus' person, that he's the kind of man we can trust. Verses 10 through 12 tell us Jesus' plan, that what he does for his people is worth giving our love over to. That's our second point and final point. You see, as hard as it was for Peter, and it is for us to believe sometimes, even in his arrest, Jesus was working a plan. It was a plan for our good and his glory. Jesus, the God in charge of everything and everyone, this Jesus fully intended to get arrested. The nighttime troops, the torches, the swords didn't catch Jesus by surprise. Jesus went to a place he knew Jesus would check, Verse two, Jesus even tells us in verse, John even tells us in verse four, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, the rest, right? The binding, the beating, the crucifixion, Jesus knowing all of these things, he came forward. But why? <laughs> why would Jesus invite this suffering and this death, this wrongful arrest? Why is Jesus at such pains to get captured that he orders Peter to put down his sword? According to verses 8 and 9, he wants his followers safe and unharmed, to be let go. In the original Greek, this word translated let go can also mean forgiveness, to be forgiven. And so Jesus begins in the garden to say, me for them, not just physically, but spiritually. And it's this hint in Greek that points us to verse 11, where Jesus' full intentions are spelled out. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given for me? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This cup looks like a nighttime arrest and hog tying, leading to a hanging on a cross, dressed with a crown of thorns, three nails, and a spear hole. This cup theologically refers to the worst suffering of all. 
God's anger over our sins, the hurt we cause ourselves, others, and God. God's judgment upon the sin behind all the light and heavy human evils ever. Jesus' true agony on the cross was God's displeasure in him for our sakes. Jesus got all of our guilt, all of our hurt, and we get his glory and his healing. But I'm really convinced when I look at myself, especially, but also when I look around, that we just don't understand how much we hurt ourselves and other people. Deep down, we think we're good people, not like them. In the words of New York Times columnist David Brooks, we just think we need a moral diet, right? We just need a little less selfish snacking, thank you. And instead, we actually need a heart transplant, a moral heart transplant. Jesus' heart for ours. See, most of us don't really buy into moral perfection as a goal. It's hard for us to imagine that God's great goodness can't tolerate one ounce of sin because it's actually really hard for us to believe that God's goal for this universe is no more tears, no more pain, no more heartache, not just fewer tears, less pain, and some heartache. But God is not satisfied with any dissatisfaction on this our planet. And this is why we need to know that we're declared 100% not guilty, that God isn't angry at us at all. And we need to know that especially when life stinks. We need to know that Jesus, the judge of the universe, was judged in our place. And the Peter inside of us all needs to rest in that fact instead of fighting it. Well, it turned out that finally a man called Nancy French's phone in New York City. And this man asked for David. And Nancy began to take a message with a sigh. But after some confusion, this man explained that he was David Lee Roth's manager. The reason that Nancy had been getting all of these breathy phone calls from a laundry list of women was that they thought David French was David Lee Roth. The long, golden-haired, spandex-wearing, high-kicking, original frontman of the 1980s rock band Van Halen. It's a true story. Turns out that David Lee Roth was giving his old phone number, now the French's new home number, to women he met but wasn't that interested in. So in her Washington Post article years later, Nancy French is able to laugh. She's thought her husband was a two-timer, but he's trustworthy. She thought that their love was precarious, but it's actually quite resilient. It's a love that held out and held on through eight moves, life-threatening diseases, jobs, steady income, friends, vehicles, pregnancies, international adoptions, and so much horrible heartache and unspeakable joy. And Nancy's story with David is just a picture It's just a flimsy photograph of Jesus with you. And that's the most important takeaway. His trustworthiness, his reliant love, his resilience for us that outlasts arrest, that overcomes the grave. 
Jesus, knowing that Jesus dearly, holds out and holds on to a hope on the other side of discouragement. If you're feeling disappointed with your life, if it's not going the way you want it to, you feel left behind, you feel left alone, trace the cup of your salvation, the cross. Pray it into your heart. Picture it in your mind. Jesus was bound so we could be let go, forgiven. Jesus drank our sadness, our brokenness, our sickness down to the bottom. And this makes him exactly the man to give your life to, to give your love over to, especially when it hurts. You see, the cross, the cup that Jesus drank, is good news we can hold on to. Not just one more piece of good advice we can't keep. Would you pray again with me? Father, thank you for this message. It's an old message. The gospel, the good news. It's a good Friday. As much as it's a hard Friday. Lord, would you help us to feel the pain with Jesus, to know that he holds our tears in his hands, that he has wounds in heaven, wounds we helped inflict. But also, would you help us to know the joy, the joy that a Savior who loves us unconditionally and just can't be angry at us anymore, that we are forgiven, that we are loved, that we are free. And I pray that that would go to our heads. It would go to our hearts. And it would change the very way that we live. Please don't let us leave this room the same. Make this gospel a stream in a dry land. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.